This desert planet is lonely and distant, but powerful in its metal and its focus. Join Morgan Maxwell in the fight against the coalition and against systemic oppression in our world in this interview about Dispatch from the Desert Planet, right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hello, and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez-Collins. Today, we're interviewing Morgan Maxwell, creator of Dispatch from the Desert Planet, which we featured last week. Dispatch is an audio art piece that fights against the concept that art isn't political at every corner. Maxwell questions the lies that we're fed every day from government personnel, advertisers, mainstream news media, and history itself. In our interview, we dig deep into the need to be a critical fan and approaching art and language with nuance and discuss various facets of the oppressive systems we live in right now and how they influence the episodes Dispatch covers. If you heard our showcase last week, you'll know that the third episode of Dispatch from the Desert Planet covers facts about the U.S. prison system. Today, we'd like to ask you to donate to Survived and Punished, a national prison abolition organization dedicated specifically to freeing and supporting criminalized and imprisoned survivors of domestic and sexual violence. This coalition raises awareness about the foundational links between gender violence and systems of punishment and provides more ways to support survivors, like letter writing. You can learn more and donate at survivedandpunished.org. Please be aware that the following interview contains talk of racism, protests, and climate change. Thank you for joining us on Radio Drama Revival, Morgan. We are super excited to talk to you about Dispatch. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah, the RDR team um, loves Dispatch, loves what you're doing in that work, and that you were able to get um, new voices to join you for your second season. So I think that means that this is the perfect time to talk about um, where Dispatch was and where it's going. Yeah, yeah, thank you. It's been very exciting. So let's let's talk a bit of background first. Morgan, what did your path into creating Dispatch in audio form look like? And what made audio the right medium for this work? Um, so I've always been a big fan of podcasts in general. Um, it's, I think, I, I was just in a, um, a theater class. I was guest teaching a theater class yesterday um, with high school students, and we were talking about um, audio because in the pandemic specifically, a lot of them have had to switch how they're interpreting theater. And some are doing a radio play and we talked a little bit about how when you have podcasts, when you have radio plays, it having the absence of the visual engages the audience in a way that you don't necessarily get with things like TV. We drew the parallel with novels and um, writing, which is kind of where my background is. And then there's also the practical considerations in that we were... Um, at the height of the pandemic when Dispatch from the Desert Planet started and it was something, um, you know, that could be done at least. I mean, I'm not necessarily a person that works well um, independently. I like to be a collaborator and there are a lot of really great people that have helped uh, work with me on Dispatch from the Desert Planet and helped collaborate. But it was something that could be done from different physical locations. Um, so, yeah, so it was a little bit practical and a little bit just a love of audio as a medium. 
Um, so 89.x1 uh, is a non-news independent radio broadcaster, right? Fighting to inform people mm-hmm. under the coalition, the oppre- oppressive, tyrannical government that surveils its citizens with regularity that we definitely cannot identify with in any way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, why is it important for 89.x1 to be independent radio? And and together with this, what's the danger that's implied by certified reporters? Yeah, well, um, you know, it's nothing to do. There's no parallels, really, with the world we're living in. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, so there's obviously, you know, the parallel between monopolies and how um, information is fed to us. And we've all lived through and continue to live through years and years of this idea of fake news and how that's presented and what that means. And, um, you know, access to information has been democratized in a way that's really incredible. And it gives a lot of people voices that I would never have heard from. And they're the exact people that I do need to hear from. Um, But on the exact same (laughs) coin is is this world full of information that's like in no way verified. Um, And so often the things that are the most dishonest and the most, you know, incredibly out there are the things that are claiming their veracity and the truthfulness um, full-throated. And so this idea of the, like the misleads and the false information having this, you know, seal of certification um, and the truth and like the idea of real people trying to get real verified information out there and not having um, access to that was really important to me. And we see those parallels in all kinds of bizarre things like mm-hmm. certification of, you know, like Avogadre spirits and like what that means yeah. and what that means for like the heritage of the producers and, um, yeah. you know, what is truth and what is realistic. Like, yeah, it gets very blurry yeah. in a very interesting way. I agree. One of the things that it made me think of was when... Um, was when 45 purged a bunch of journalists from the White House press corps. Mm-hmm. Um, I was mm-hmm. I thought thought about that when I was <laughs> thinking about certified reporters, right? And and this mm-hmm. concept of like who is able to disseminate information. Um, yeah, and I um I think at the time I was reading bad news. Uh, I wish I knew the author's name off the top of my head, but um, it is um. It's a book about journalism um, post post genocide in Rwanda and um, and kind of the intricacies of that and how they like so often when we have really horrific events in history, there's that void right that's created that vacuum where um, people take advantage of it and so post genocide there there's really this like effort to to use the genocide and to really not honor those people's story, the people who suffered in any way. Um, And especially through media with these like really large memorials and things that had to do nothing really with collective healing, but with reminding people constantly, right, of this horror so that um, the people in power could continue to, you know, continue their subjugation um, with this, (laughs) with this really gruesome reminder in the background of like, look what happens um, if we're not the ones making the decision yeah exactly (laughs) you know light reading 
<laughs> That's ultimately what I'm saying. Something casual and fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to read that right before bedtime. Jeez. No, but really important um, parallel to be drawn here and very good information. You said that book was called Bad News. Yeah, and... Um, the author's name is escaping me, which is so often the case. <laughs> but. No, yeah, mood. I I never remember authors' names uh, <laughs> really ever. So don't even worry about. It. So I would say that in the last few years, right, it's become it's becoming a lot clearer to the general U.S. public um, mm. that journalists are are at least uh, the journalists in general, right, are are stifled either stifled from do, doing their jobs due to racist structures that actively prevent them. Um, mm-hmm. Or they're part of the system that's keeping those structures in place, right? Uh, yeah, or often both. <laughs> yeah, or or both. <laughs> um, how can citizens who do not work in journalism, uh, like not citizens? Why did I say citizens? It's because it's, it's because of the show. It's a dispatch thing. Uh-huh. It's the dispatch yeah. thing. Yes. Okay. So now that we're not on the desert planet right now for this question, and I appreciated you adopting our lingo. Yeah. <laughs> How can people who don't work in journalism <laughs> um, help uh, keep important work from being censored and or uh, help check right what's what's happening? Yeah, I am. Um, I wish I knew. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. I, I think I think that's part of um, part of what's been really scary. I mean. I, I want to say in my lifetime, it's been the last, you know, six years, but I think mm-hmm. that's the just my adult life that I've started paying attention to things. Um, but is is it there are so many problems that it seems like, you know, at least the circles that I run in are very sure exist. Like they're very easy to identify. <laughs> we can see that they're a problem. We can even imagine the solution. Um, but in terms of concrete action for people to take, um, the answers aren't really there uh so you know i always turn to books i've been reading a lot of um activist works to just try to inspire and that's kind of what started this project really was like the idea of art activism um but there's there's the small things you can do like quite literally support an independent um media organization Mm -hmm. that you know is doing good work um i think there's something to be said for fighting for the truth and fighting for truth of language and not letting um, the language around things change, right? Mm -hmm. We see that has happened with Antifa where not having the last last syllable in there has led to a total um, redefinition by people of what that stood for, you know? So there's something to saying like you mean anti-fascist yeah like- <laughs> and there's something <laughs> yeah to be said about continuing to insist that um that things really do mean what they mean or that things really are important um, and it's you know we're over indexed with information so it's nearly impossible um you know you have to put on your battle gear every single day um and yep yeah <laughs> and so so you know it gets overwhelming it gets overwhelming for um the people who really believe these things and it gets overwhelming for the people who are not quite sure and have to hear that constantly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's hard. Um, but you know, support independent news, like, yeah, you know, absolutely especially support independent news. <laughs> yeah, um, especially real journalism and, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, you were talking about all this, uh, all these, the activist books that you're reading, and and of course the second episode, horoscopes, is a <laughs> coded reference to Pussy Riot's Guide to Activism and their manifesto, <laughs> yeah. right? So talk to me yeah. about Pussy Riot's influence on Dispatch and on your and it, it, their influence on your own approach to um, art activism and anti-oppression. Yeah. Um, so I think it had one concrete influence. I, I want to say that it is not necessarily the best uh, resource like it is not necessarily the best book when it comes to activism Mm -hmm. um there are other readings that i would suggest i would like say to read about the combahee river collective and you know to like revisit angela davis but hell yeah angela um, davis (laughs) yeah but but the the thing that was concretely really important about that book to me um and i think came at the right time is one it, it does have advice that feels very concrete and very digestible about how to deal with, uh, you know, just, I would call it the fascism that's like slowly crawling around us, but just how to deal with um, a government that doesn't necessarily have your best interests at heart. Mm -hmm. But um, also for me, what was really liberating and freeing was, um, was how it approached art um, and not necessarily having all of the tools <laughs> that you think you would need to create something or the knowledge or um and so uh i believe it's natasha um the author writes yeah. about how um she proposed writing an essay with a friend or writing a thesis about um about feminist punk and the, it was accepted, their project was accepted, and then they went and they couldn't find any feminist punk music. So they started a feminist punk band. And <laughs> at that time, neither of them knew how to be in a band or um, <laughs> do anything of the sort. And they like rigged some sort of like battery um, backpack that they would do these performances outside. And it was like leaking battery acid. And it was just like, they had none of the resources that you would need to do this um, or knowledge. And uh, obviously, it's it's endured. <laughs> Pussy yeah. ride is very much a thing. Um, yep. And so that felt really freeing to me as someone who's always wanted to uh, try a project like this and really just didn't have the the skill set or the knowledge that so many people have. Um, I thought, well, <laughs> might as well try. <laughs> yeah. No, give it a shot. For those who are interested in. Um, this book, it's uh, Read and Riot, A Pussy Riot Guide to Activism by Nadia Tolokonikova. <laughs> Thank you. Continuing on this line, right, of this uh, this influence in, like, creating um, art, art activism, feminist punk bands, um, <laughs> which is dope. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> um We've heard the very inaccurate uh, phrases, art isn't political, or separate art mm-hmm. from the artist, or politics, or whatever, like a million times. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what do you think is um, a good way for her uh, to go about dismantling or complicating these perceptions, um, especially if it's like something being said by, you know, someone in, in your community and you need to yeah not have, have that a response. spread there we go <laughs> yeah um i don't know it's just it's exhausting isn't it <laughs> it is absolutely exhausting like it's, it's just like oh you mean you have to have this conversation again 
Yeah, well, and, you know, everyone's, um, just globally, everyone's favorite art is is generally created by the most oppressed people. And mm-hmm. and we want to pretend like that had nothing to do with it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe you shouldn't enjoy that art so much. <laughs> Wonder what it is in you that really needs yeah. to, like, <laughs> that really appreciates feeding off of what's clearly something fueled by, um, you know, a million mini traumas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um Love to put on those blinders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that um, I think when it is or isn't political, that one's I don't know if it's the easier answer, but it is just like historically that's never been true. Um, mm-hmm. Just n- never, never for a minute. Never. <laughs> never. And, and, it, and it wouldn't like if, you know, if art had never if no art existed and it was invented today, it would surely still be rooted in some sort of um, identity. Right. Because that's why people create and mm-hmm. identity is political. Um, as far as the, you know, separate the art from the artist, I think. I think it really depends on, you know, who you're saying that about and and why. Yeah. And, and it's hard because like nuance has been lost. Um, yeah. You know, nuance think, in my Internet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, um, you know, I don't. I consider myself a pretty radical thinking person and I still don't really know anyone that's telling people like they can't enjoy things because someone said something they um they didn't like for me personally i i quite literally can't enjoy things um when i find out that they've been produced by someone you know who's like assaulted someone or who has um done something that doesn't align with my values because like that's not enjoyable for me anymore right and I think um (laughs) but if it's still enjoyable for a person uh if you just like really still need to listen to that song or um I think that you know practically speaking there's a lot of ways to consume stuff that don't um like don't put money into the pocket of yeah. the person. Like, I'm personally a big fan of DVDs. Um, yeah, huge fan of DVDs. You can buy them, buy them used, y'all. Right, yeah. I, I get them at used bookstores, and then it just, like, doesn't matter at all that James Cameron was involved, or it doesn't matter. Like, no one knows that they're being played on my little DVD player. No one's getting royalties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so get creative. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I've started my DVD collection up again now that I live with someone who has a DVD player. Mm-hmm. So it's been it's been great. Uh, yeah. I love it. Um, and and this this comp this is a very complicated topic, right? And I think that something that when it comes to the nuance that hasn't been lost, as you were saying, one of the <laughs> right. things that that I think people don't understand is that when you love something, that's fine, love it, mm-hmm. but you need to love it critically, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. this this concept of being able to love something and also like understand it critically has Mm -hmm. like is like can't exist both at the same time like (laughs) yeah right yeah so yeah i no i think you're absolutely right and i think people kind of fear um fear taking that critical look at things because um because they know that it ultimately will probably lead to them loving it less you know we as humans Mm -hmm. we compartmentalize like that's how we make it through the day um and so the yep. idea of having to yeah, to really confront something when you know ultimately like yeah it's not going to be as enjoyable when you no. um when you stop to think it's about not. it so i think yeah the fear of doing that is a lot for some people um mm-hmm. you know which is i get it but it's it's hard 
Yeah, no, this, these are all like the conversations that Dispatch talks about are all mm-hmm. and the, the, the news events and the current events and the philosophical topics, right, <laughs> that you discuss are all very difficult for people, um, but they're necessary. Mm-hmm. And I think that we as a especially white people and um, white passing people of color myself Mm -hmm. um, and my communities have like gotten very complacent right with the concept of like being uncomfortable Mm -hmm. is something that you need need to do in order to achieve right change Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and that that and that being comfortable you know isn't an attack or isn't Mm -hmm. an affront you know and I think it's something that we say all the time is just like being a person of color is uncomfortable like every day mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know most days it's like fine I at least for yeah I'm very lucky I'm just very fortunate and have a lot of privilege in my life so the discomfort is minimal um and it's something that you adapt to and I think that you know asking that white people do the same thing or at least be open to the possibility that some days might be a little bit less comfortable it's like not a big ask radio drama revival has been showcasing fiction podcasts and elevating the voices of their creators for 13 years if you've enjoyed this show if it's helped you or healed you or done the unforgivable and increased your episode queue There are a couple of ways to support our continued existence. First, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. We have a special Discord server for all our patrons, where we organize monthly meetups with listening parties, silly and informative PowerPoint presentations on podcasting, and more. Second, we have the ticker tapes. For a small fee, you can share a message with the rest of Radio Drama Revival's audience. I'll read the messages, and they can be a birthday card, a quick podcast advert, a casting announcement, whatever you have that needs an audience like this one. You can learn more at radiodramarevival.com slash ticker tape. So um, my favorite moment that I experienced while listening to re-listening to, to Dispatch for this for the show was when I discovered that the coffee bureau ad is real. <laughs> Right. It's yeah. the sponsorship message for a speech by Eleanor Roosevelt in 1941. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's one of my Absolutely. favorite things, too. Absolutely fascinating. It was it was great. And like, I was listening to it and you can slightly tell that it's been slightly edited. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. Um, but then you move on. Right. Because it fits right in with with what you're doing. And then mm-hmm. this time for this interview, I went through and I clicked all the links and I was like, wait. This sounds familiar. Yeah. 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 It's a wild ad. Yeah, it is, it is a wild, wild ad. I'm just kind of like, wow, the 40s really just went balls to the wall with the military propaganda, huh? Yeah. Um, yeah. Not that we've really stopped. Uh, no. It just, it just takes the form of superhero movies. Um, yeah. Uh, but how did you how did you go about sourcing and selecting the right audio clips, right? Because this you have a real audio clip in almost every episode, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially in um, in the earlier episodes. Yeah. I one thing that I want to try to maintain through all the episodes, even the bonus episodes, so there's like mm-hmm. one element of something from the real world. Um, and for me, the most fun way is with the um, 
with the real audio clips. Um, it's also just technically the most uh, challenging <laughs> problem in that <laughs> copyright is a little bit fickle. Mm, <laughs> and knowing, just just... <laughs> yeah, knowing what is what is usable or um, what is usable and what context is it makes it a little bit trickier. There are other things that I would love to use, um, but I'm just not like not quite sure it's worth it. Um, so I've gone through a lot of old archives. Um, that's like, yeah, that's a the Eleanor Roosevelt speech. So I don't think that that, like I, when the speech was uploaded, I don't think the coffee ad was of interest <laughs> to anyone except for me. I think that is the most fascinating part. Um, and there is a link and I would encourage listening to it because it is really bizarre how an announcer like, announces Eleanor Roosevelt's wartime <laughs> speech, but then they take like a quick break to be sponsored by coffee um, in, a, in a really broad <laughs> sense too. It's just like the American Coffee Bureau. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I bet yeah, there's so probably <laughs> people there like, we have a coffee bureau, um, <laughs> yeah. which is like totally fine because I don't think we don't any, I think we don't anymore. Yeah, well, I talk, I mean, talk about the layers of colonialism right, there, right? Yeah. It's like a wartime speech and then, you know, coffee, where does that grow? Um, mm, definitely not in the U.S., maybe places right. like Puerto Rico. Yeah, yeah. well, in places the U.S. has stolen, actually. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, Hawaii. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I, so. yeah, I grew up, like, being taken to, like, we took field trips to, like, coffee plantations. I, I grew mm -hmm. up in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. um, and and we would take field trips to these places. And they'd be like, "Look at these coffee plantations that we have because of the U.S. Really? Yeah, yeah. The way and, that they work um, is because of the U.S. <laughs> and all of the resources like all come directly back to us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, so the the fun thing about the just old ads in general. Um, I've used a lot from companies that have gone defunct and things that feel um, more, I think, more public domain to me if they don't exist anymore, their point of origin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the cool thing about them is like almost just any ad I listen to from, I mean, basically the 80s backwards is is just like that. It's just yeah. like jaw on the floor. What is this? It's just, it's just this. <laughs> yeah, they all, um, they almost all can fit, especially in the, you know, 40s, 50s. They are all yeah. really, really war focused and really band together and feel terrifying in that way. Um, but yeah, they're, they're some of my favorite things to listen to. Just going through old archives is a, is a blast. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love, um, I love podcasts that, that include especially fiction podcasts that include things like um, 40s and 50s and, and older, like, vintage ads, <laughs> right, in order to comment on some things. Have you listened to the podcast, What's the Frequency? I have not. It's a it's a very, it's a surreal, like, experimental um, mystery horror, right? And one of the things that, that they do in this podcast is they actually create um, fake wartime ads. Oh, um, love it. <laughs> yeah, and and they're they're very intense. Uh, they they get they, they they ramp up in intensity, right? And they're they're mm -hmm. specifically commenting on like uh, like American militarism and consumerism and capitalism and its effect on human beings. Mm -hmm. And they're really really intense, but <laughs> really really well done. Um, and I love shows Brilliant. that that do this, right? That include real ones that write their own in order to be a little bit more in your face with the satire. Um, yeah, it's just very, I think it's really important to be able to source 
those real beginnings that you're drawing from and be able to show Mm -hmm. people that like, I'm not just making this up from nothing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This really happens. (laughs) I will never, (laughs) I will never get the ad for the sloppy Joe's out of my head. (laughs) I never. Uh, Yeah. There's, there's a lot of just truly wild ones. Um, The things (laughs) we felt were appropriate to say, although I, I look at stuff now too and I go, we that's cool with everyone so yeah i guess cool i guess mm-hmm. yeah watching marketing and advertising these days is just like an experience and mm-hmm. how to be the most racist you can be while not triggering white people who think <laughs> yeah. that they're woke yeah <laughs> um so in um uh in dispatch i noticed that all the names of the broadcasters including june seem to be references to very influential writers of color, right? Sandra Cisneros, mm-hmm. uh, Langston Hughes, County Cullen, and of course, June Jordan. Mm-hmm. Have I correctly identified the naming pattern here? Yes. Yes, you cool. have. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, I'm not making it up in my brain then. Um, <laughs> yeah, the cats are named after um, white poets. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> the cat is Keats. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. That's very good. I just, I, I forgot about That's very good. Um, can you explain what was behind your naming process and, and why it was important? Um, it's, it's probably my writerly bias, but I, poets to me are just, you know, the rebels, right? Yeah. And they are, the, and if there's any sort of like rebel activist that I would name myself in the tradition of, it would absolutely be poets and specifically marginalized poets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, to me, there's something very fun about a little rebel radio station that, you know, just wants to be artists, <laughs> just wants to be not <laughs> fighting this fight necessarily, but it's, you know, it's the one they have. <laughs> That's um, very good. <laughs> yeah. That's very good. I really like that. Yeah, no, um, uh, poetry and then music are, mm-hmm. I think, they go hand in hand in, in activist work. Um, yeah. That I think people don't really realize the like the the way that they still have that importance. Like it's not just a thing that's relegated to the past, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people you think about like protest songs, and people are like, "Oh well, well Bob Marley, right?" Right. Um, and it's kind of like not that's not the only person, <laughs> right? Right. And they right. they just think that it's a thing from like the '60s, um, but in fact, it's just kind of like no, it's still happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Or or like you know more subtle protest songs, things that I don't think are subtle, right? But mm-hmm. they, for some reason, I guess that's where, <laughs> it depends on who interprets it and why, but you know, you think of like Harry Belafonte and um, mm-hmm. I've, I, since childhood, I've been traumatized and in love with the Banana Boat song. But like, if you listen to it, <laughs> you yeah. know, what is that? <laughs> like, yeah. how is that, you know, and it's, um, but it has this really beautiful, fun play of really, jovial danceable music um and it made its way into mm-hmm. every home every yeah. home in america <laughs> yeah i didn't think that i would ever actually like experience this myself with like my community um but in mm-hmm. puerto rico in um in 2019 we you know the people on the island protested against the extremely corrupt horrible governor mm-hmm. um the breaking point was the revelation of a secret um what was the, I forget the platform, but like a secret chat with like other members of 
mm-hmm. government and some lobbyists who probably shouldn't have been in this conversation um, <laughs> and like like making like really homophobic, misogynistic, right. threatening like comments about people that they work with and, and people who were critics of theirs. Um, and one of the things that happened during these protests was the development of a, a protest song um, called Afilando los Cuchillos by Bad Bunny, Residente, and Ile. Um, and it was became incredibly popular. Like, the day that it came out, people were singing it already, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. In, at the protests. And I listened to it the first time, and I started crying, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I, I never thought that I would experience this particular thing like mm-hmm. if it, it feels like a very particular thing to have this music right and and poems and and this right and music is poetry right and <laughs> music is same. poetry right thing, yeah yeah and and to have those things as like touchstones that you live through it's not just stuff mm-hmm. that like you you got from your ancestors right through your history through your family but like mm-hmm. something that you live through and it's just like i've been thinking about that a lot and so yeah yeah no i mean i think i have too i think I think we all have, you know, there's jokes abound about feeling at this moment like you're actually living through history. And mm. and um, but I think one of the the realities of it that I, that I think was hard for me to imagine when I was younger is just like that it's you know, it doesn't end yeah, <laughs> the next no. day it comes like there's no um, you never know. You know, the moment is the moment, which I think I had been told and understood with other stuff like oh you'll look back and think like these were the best years but um when it comes to just horrifying things that are happening in our world um it's really hard to know when every moment feels like okay well this is the breaking point right um yeah when you're supposed to do something when you're supposed to do something big um when you're supposed to do something more than just chat about it with people. Yeah. You're supposed to, to do something. Yeah. Action. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then that feeling like you have to do that like every day once you hit that point. Right. And then right. nobody and else is doing it. And you're just kind of like, hello? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or or, the, or people are and it doesn't seem like enough or, yeah. you know, something else happens. Like there's so many um little like fibers woven into that that, that I think our brains weren't really primed <laughs> to yeah. deal with when we thought about history as like an abstraction and thought, oh, why didn't they do something? It's like, well, I guess they did. They probably did every single day. <laughs> yeah, probably. <You> know? <laughs> why didn't they do something? I think they did. I think you just weren't paying attention. Yeah, it just didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, just to, to continue talking a little bit here about literature, um, mm-hmm. Dispatch is also heavily informed by Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to know what are some Afrofuturist works that had an impact on Dispatch or an impact just on you that you would recommend to our audience? Yeah, I um, and Afrofuturism is is a little bit funny in the um, in the same way satire is in that there's not like an agreed upon definition. I guess the agreed upon <laughs> definition is um, you know diasporic imaginings of the future, right? So that's basically any. Um, science fiction or speculative fiction that a black person has written and wants to be (laughs) Afrofuturism. But for me, uh, a couple of years ago, probably 2017 now, um, I made the really conscious choice to um, only read books by women of color. And um, 
before that, I had been doing sort of like unofficially that, like I wasn't reading books by white men for the most part. So I thought like, I really only want to support um, female authors or I really only want to support people of color. Mm -hmm. But the way that works on bookshelves meant I was just reading a lot of white women and a lot of, you know, not even a lot, a handful of black men um, and basically nothing else, you know. and so yeah, I made a decision to only read books by women of color. And I've since branched out a little bit. Um, you know, I'll just read what I want to read. But for the most part, that really stays <laughs> being books by women of color. And um, it changed my relationship to speculative fiction a lot. That was something I had always loved as a child. And as an adult, I just didn't have the patience for it. And I thought maybe it was like, it was something <laughs> for children. You know, I didn't have, um, <laughs> like, and, and I wasn't reading children's books when I was mm-hmm. a child. I was reading like very long anthologies. Um, but I, the, the kind of like world building elements of it, um, as an adult, I found totally unrelatable. It was just like, it was almost like reading textbooks um, where you just had to <laughs> learn so much information and like family dynasties and things that were just, um, not not things that I was interested in. So um, so that reading books by women of color really changed my relationship to science fiction specifically. Um, my favorite author who I think is criminally underrated is Nalo Hopkinson. Um, <gasps> Love Nalo <laughs> Hopkinson. Yeah, yes. I think that her name should always be set along like Octavia Butler and um, Walter Mosley and Samuel uh, R. Delaney, mm-hmm. but it's not as often and part of me wonders if that's because she is still here with us and we don't we tend not mm. to give black women <laughs> credit until mm. <laughs> they're not there to receive it um but yeah so uh anything nala hopkinson has written i think should be at the top of um someone's to read list and it's it has such a wide variety um yeah she's been writing for such a long time or at least it feels like it there's a you can see like a real ebbs and flows and changes in her work. And she, um, she, I think, does a really brilliant job writing about disability and writing about like some of the more intricate parts of racism and colorism and you know privilege within racism. But they're all just woven into these really beautiful books. And some are um, you know, historical. They all have a little bit of a speculative fiction tint. Um, some are like really operate in the world of science fiction and some operate more in the world of um, historical fiction, but there's always like a hint of magic there or a hint of um, something in the future. And I think they're brilliant. Um, Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. (laughs) And if for some reason you haven't read N.K. Jemisin audience uh, Mm -hmm. in the fifth season, please do so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have, Jemison has only recently kind of entered my world. And um, one of my favorite things is the description of food. I love, I love, love, love speculative fiction that yes. talks about food. Big same. Um, that's the world building that I want. Um, yeah. <laughs> the mechanics of some sort of machine is not really speaking the way that um, the meals are. And um, on, on the same line of thinking, I just read, um, a two-part YA series um, by uh, Taylor K. Mejia. Um, <gasps> yes. Yeah, which beautiful descriptions of food. I, I the titles I'm not gonna get right. I think it's like we burn. I, I can't do it. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> there's two. There's one with shadows and one with fire. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Taylor. 
Yes, it's the. Um... <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> so sorry, I know. After all that, I did this dress again. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Last name is Mejia, right? Yeah. Um, hold on. Yeah. Oh, um, we uh, uh, we set the dark on fire. We set the dark on fire, and then there's a second um, book in that series. Yeah, and it's, which is um, we unleash the merciless storm. Thank you. <laughs> yes, the um, titles are yeah. long. That's why they're hard to remember, y'all. <laughs> so, um, not Afrofuturism, but just no. beautifully written. Um, yeah, gorgeous. If yeah. We're talking about food and science fiction. Like, genu- genuinely, I fully agree with you. Like, sure, you've got this giant machine that's very complicated that can do <laughs> weird things with alternate realities and you're like to explain alternate reality theory. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. But what are the scientists eating? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> what is everyone eating? And, you know, I um, <laughs> I before you said that it's like it was a little bit hard to track me down on the internet <laughs> before my internet persona that existed was, um, was all in the food space um, and it was like stories around food. But it's because I think food is something that is um, is really a brilliant tool to talk about everything because <laughs> everyone yeah. eats, right? And uh, questions of equity come up immediately when you start talking about food. And um, mm-hmm. especially in a world-building sense, those are great questions to ask, you know, who eats what and how? Because um, yeah. it ultimately comes back to the questions of resources, which is, yeah. to Why me, do the they most eat interesting what they part. Eat? <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. Like, you get history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, <laughs> it's, is it just something that they eat because it's traditional? Okay, but why do they eat it? Like, yeah, <laughs> do they have access to nothing else? Uh, is right. It like, right, like, what's the historical religious significance of this work? I think that you make a very good point there about mm-hmm. Yeah, you answer questions food. about... <laughs> about culture and about equity and about everything in one fell sweep, sweep and um, and it's you know interesting to me. I, <laughs> I, I live for descriptions of food. <laughs> Tell me about the food. Um, make me hungry after reading your book. Um, so since we're talking about food, um, yeah. <laughs> what are you cooking lately to keep yourself nourished um, as we watch the vaccine counter tick? <laughs> yeah, I um, so I think I kind of had a little bit of an opposite relationship with cooking um, through the pandemic than most people. <laughs> I um, <laughs> I I love cooking and I always have, or at least in my adult life I have. Um, it's I was like, uh, I was a kid with a single mom who grew up on frozen food for the most part. So <laughs> reclaiming cooking at home was <laughs> something really big for me. And, um, and yeah, I used to have uh, not even a food blog, a food Instagram. Um, And I did a lot of cooking and I would always take the slow road there, right? Like I had a sourdough starter, I'd make pasta from scratch. And um, in the pandemic, I haven't wanted to cook anything. No, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I've been (laughs) trapped in this little space, like the last thing. Um, Food has always been really creative for me. And I feel like the wells of creativity for just anything have been really... um, I've been really low on that. I feel I'm also like very, very fortunate. I I was a substitute teacher before the pandemic. So um, I'm very lucky to be in a relationship that, you know, can continue to pay our rent. Um, That's good. Because, <laughs> yeah, so I'm not <laughs> not yeah. discounting how lucky I am <laughs> to be able to still make it through day to day or to even, um, you know, feels wrong to complain yeah. about. I have plenty of access to food, uh, but 
as far as the like excitement and creativity, the last thing I want <laughs> is to be is yeah. to be making anything, <laughs> making more food. Yeah, no, I, I yeah. several of my friends who and myself included, right, who all love to cook, have all been like, "What if I just ordered takeout again?" <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's it's fine, right? Too. <laughs> of course, it's fine. Yeah, yeah I guess I'm just gonna day. make pasta and put canned sauce on it. <laughs> Nailed yeah, it. Yeah, we had pasta last night. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, take I think. Last night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have. I'm sure I've made some really fun and tasty things that I enjoyed lately, but not a single one is coming to mind. So that's where I'm at. <laughs> I hope that. Man, I hope that the the vaccines, uh, once they get distributed, you are able to to recreate that energy. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> it's like really important in terms of like being able to cook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Normally, I find cooking to be like a real meditation. It's um, mm-hmm. exactly. yeah, it's a time that I really enjoy. But <laughs> <laughs> there's been but so alas. much contemplative time lately. Yeah, really, we've got a lot of for time extra. to meditate these days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maxed mm. <laughs> out on that. <laughs> so you're originally from Tucson. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Did Tucson influence the world building of the remote desert planet or any other part of this podcast? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It certainly did in my head. Um, the Because Dispatch from the Desert Planet has just really evolved on the fly and because um <laughs> because a lot of it has been framed um just as like the radio broadcast there hasn't had to be a lot of um concrete sensory world building mm-hmm. um at least not that is happening uh in the podcast like plenty has happened in my head right. <laughs> but, <laughs> um but yeah I, I my um my hometown has has like a very enduring uh influence on me that I think I didn't really recognize I um you know I am uh, I I grew up there and really took for granted um how special it was and how different and I think most people feel that way about their hometown but I um yeah I I don't have a culture necessarily <laughs> I was yeah. raised by the white side of my family um that's you know from Utah and before that from you know, mostly um mostly Denmark, <laughs> but that does that beautiful thing that white Americans do where culture is just like gone, right? It just yep. becomes this Americanness. Um, we don't really have family foods and we don't have, like we're not rooted in anything. Um, and as a black kid growing up in Tucson, I didn't know that I was searching for that necessarily. Um, but I think now when there are like cultural things that I relate to, they're really rooted in the desert. They're really re- root, um, rooted in like Sonoran <laughs> culture because um, that's the closest I had. <laughs> it's all yeah. borrowed from my friends, um, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, that's what I got. And um, yeah, I love it. I think about moving back all the time. And um, just by virtue of the fact that a lot of my um, friends were able to help and humor me through this project most I, so most of the people involved are um, are from the desert. <laughs> my um, uh, <laughs> Athena nice. and the other Morgan are both from Tucson. Um, Athena still lives there. Um, Angela is um, from Nogales and then Tucson. And um, my friend Leanne uh, is from Las Vegas. So it's not 
you know, we weren't connected in that way, but she's from her own desert. Um, yeah, so it just, as you know, as so happens. <laughs> it just so happens. We yeah. share the desert here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there was only only a couple of people involved that aren't, um, aren't, weren't born and raised in the desert. Yeah. My parents met in Tucson. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So I, when I like found out you were from Tucson, I was like, oh, hey. Yeah. It's the, it's it's the bit world. of the desert that my parents brought back from mm-hmm. finishing their PhDs. <laughs> mm, University yeah. of Arizona? Yep. Tucson. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yep. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, uh, they met in a library, which tells you all you really need to know about my parents. Oh, so sweet. <laughs> that's the dream. That is the dream, right? <laughs> I mean, I guess it depends on what section, but generally yeah, that's, that's the dream. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> um, I don't know what section. I never asked. Um, <laughs> probably the German section. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, my dad is a physicist, and he had to learn back in like the time that he was studying when you were doing physics you had to learn mm-hmm. either german or russian in order to read articles mm-hmm. so he learned german and my mother is a music theory professor uh-huh. so, and <laughs> her <laughs> dissertation was about a german composer uh-huh and so <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think that's that's why let's this is my like eh, maybe this one yeah i i mean i think that's a meet cute <laughs> if i ever heard one <laughs> right yeah god Send me some of that. Um, uh, so one of the um, one of the things that I was thinking about lately, and and also some a couple of people on on my team, um, was whether um, whether any of your observations about or experiences with climate change um, mm-hmm. show up in dispatches world building. Yeah, I mean, I. And maybe it's just my mindset, but for me, it's it's basically impossible to imagine um, a future without thinking about <laughs> without mm-hmm. thinking about climate change, even even totally a totally fictional future. Um, but that is, you know, I think it's it's impossible, and it would also be like a little bit irresponsible, right? Because we have this yep. <laughs> one nightmare on our doorstep, um, and to pretend that that would be solved and like not learned from (laughs) um in any kind of like no matter how fantastical the reality is i think that that's like one element that really does need to be there um and so yeah again i don't you know i sometimes i don't know how much i exist in my own head and how much it actually comes (laughs) across um but Mm -hmm. for me i think if you you know talk about any questions um of just like humans in space humans in the future like mm-hmm. the resources you know are something oh sorry i think there's another really loud um <laughs> i tried to <laughs> i tried to close everything up but here we are that's okay um <laughs> but so uh yeah i think if you're talking about any sort of even fantastically imagined future resources are a real question right and especially it's a question in the things that interest me like inequity um mm-hmm. But, you know, how how do people have what they have? How are they distributed? Um, I can't, no matter how utopic I could imagine things, I can't really picture a world where we've solved that problem, right? Where um, everyone has all the resources they need and that it's like still equitable. I think I don't want to be um, pessimistic about the future of humans, but even <laughs> if we like get everything figured out, I just can't imagine that there's not still then 
some other manufactured inequity, right? Like we made up money. Yeah, we made <laughs> just, up money, y'all. Money yeah. is fake. <laughs> and we're sticking to it, right? Yeah. Just so that some people could have things and some people could not. Um, Borders, also fake. <laughs> we made them. Um, yeah. yeah, and so um, we and we made all these things and then we, um, we made borders, we made money, and we made it seem like a character judgment, right? Like yep. we made it seem <laughs> like somehow a reflection of someone's work their self um so yeah it does very much exist in the world i mean you know part of why we're on a desert planet um and, then, and part of why no one's really interested in what's <laughs> happening on the desert planet is <laughs> because it's just that right it's just like the not desert. there's not resources yeah to take um yeah. and in a you know dystopia where there's a kind of horrible government and monopolies on things um you, you absolutely know that resources, <laughs> material yeah. land resources are going to be the thing that, um, you know, that help enable that and control that. I don't know about you, but I would steal one of the Chuckwallas. Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was um, terrified of lizards growing up. <laughs> and of course, I grew up in a desert. Then I've moved to other places and learned that lizards don't even exist most other places. Yeah. Yeah, it's no, just don't. my personal nightmare. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we're we're okay now. I do prefer if they stay, you know, outside oh, and outside. away from me. <laughs> away from me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I as I mentioned, I grew up in PR and we have many lizards in the tropic. <laughs> many, many lizards, several of them quite big. Some of them are giant iguanas that will lie across the road and not move. And you just sit there and go, Well, I guess I live here now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, I guess uh, one of the things that I also wanted to to engage with here is this um, this idea like it is honestly irresponsible to imagine a future where climate change hasn't had some kind of impact. Mm-hmm. Right. And I've, I've actually had this conversation um, with the game masters of Fun City. And for anyone who doesn't know it, that is a shadow run um, actual play podcast. Um, it's delightful. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, they, one of the things that Mike Rugnetta told me during this interview, which you will all be able to read eventually, um, <laughs> is that um, a setting in the future feels incomplete if there isn't climate change has mm-hmm. not impacted it in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think that just like you're one hundred percent right about that. Um, even if yeah. you're what you're looking at is like a really distant future where the impact from climate change is seen in things more like the economics and population growth and like community values more than in the space that they're in. Yeah, totally. Because the impacts I'm, of climate change are not just physical, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there I'm, you know, I'm not like a, a hard science fiction person that thinks you need to explain everything. And in fact, like, you know, as I kind of mentioned, like that, that's what I turn away from in science fiction, right? I don't need mm-hmm. to be um, over explained by the minutia, but I think um, to ignore climate change in, yeah. in a future, in an imagined future where you could do whatever you wanted, right? To solve it or to not solve it. Um, yeah, it does. It feels irresponsible. And it also just feels, you know, so hollow. Like I, mm-hmm. 
I understand wanting escapism. Um, I'm the twisted kind of person whose escapism is like a darker dystopia or like at least a more clear cut dystopia. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I understand not wanting to engage with that. But, um, you know, then I think you would want to take the utopia values from it. Like you would want to mm-hmm. learn from it to make like, a, you know, a beautiful place. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree. There's ways to deal with it that aren't just depressing. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> What do you hope to achieve with the production of Dispatch? What kinds of things within our industry do you want to influence? This is specifically a time like this question is meant to open a space for you to talk about your dreams and speak them into the universe if you want, if you're comfortable (laughs) with doing so. Well, thank you. (laughs) What a platform. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know that I have really dreams or aspirations. I'm... um, I just, I love audio fiction. I love, like, I love audio as a format for everything, right? It's, like, my preferred medium um, for, you know, news, and it's my preferred medium. Um, I guess I wouldn't say it's my preferred medium for storytelling because I'm a big reader, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's something that um, I engage with, you know, every single day. And I have so much respect for people who make audio fiction. Um, there's... I think really, really under um, under respected talent there. I think mm-hmm. the amount of work, and I think, you know, um, much like with the democratizing of all things that came from the internet, um, there's a sort of projection that it doesn't take the same amount of work, right? Because yeah. it's more accessible <laughs> to some right. people now. Um, it makes it seem like oh, it's like, easy. And it's very much not. Um, <laughs> mine, <laughs> mine feels sneaky because, uh, like I said, it was kind of <laughs> we just it was like created and thrown up there. Um, so to me, it also always kind of feels like it operates a little bit outside of the world of audio fiction. There's not the same, you know, production, and there's not um, the same tools involved, and there's definitely not the same knowledge base on my part. But um, but though you know, people who exist in audio fiction have already proven themselves to be willing to spend a lot of time (laughs) doing free labor. And fortunately for people (laughs) like me, that extends to free labor around um, sharing information about how to create things, right? And sharing resources and um, giving advice, you know? So for me, it's been a really fun learning experience. I, uh, (laughs) during the pandemic, before this project started, um, there was an uh, independent uh, podcast that was looking to hire someone like just part time. And I applied having, I knew nothing about audio, like had created none and was really um, clear about that in my application. And I got a very, very kind rejection. But um, in my application, I put like, I'm not sure how to do this, but I'm sure I can figure it out. And mm-hmm. <laughs> that was one of the catalysts to um, me starting this project is I was like, well, I said I could figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> and I believed <laughs> it when I said true. it. So <laughs> I guess um, if I'm willing to tell other people that I, uh, I might as well tell myself. And so um, yeah. it has been a process of figuring it out and not just for me, for so many incredible people in my life (laughs) that are willing to be involved in this. And like, you know, the microphone I'm using was um, now a friend, but at the time a friend of a friend like 
took the time in a pandemic, you know, and it's not even safe to be around people to like set up a bunch of microphones for me to test out and just give them to me um, Mm -hmm. to start this project. And so many people have been really, really helpful and supportive. Um, And so for me, like that's done, like (laughs) mission accomplished. Um, Mission accomplished. I was, yeah, able to, you know, pay some people that I think are really cool. And um, yeah, I could, you know, always use a little extra money. And so that was, you know, something that I wanted to do from the beginning, make sure I was giving money to artists, (laughs) but it was money that I didn't necessarily have. So I thought, (laughs) well, we got to make something. And um, yeah, it worked. (laughs) Or at least, you know. (laughs) I would also argue that like dispatches definitely within like the realm of, you know, audio fiction. It's not outside of it. (laughs) Um, especially since like even if the work that that you feel like you put into it wasn't so much in the production side right or not as complicated as like these other fiction creators but i think that you did put a lot of work into the script um (laughs) yeah thank you yeah writing writing a satire uh that deals with these real very real events um and so much research that you obviously put into it Um, thanks i appreciate that is yeah i think that that's like an important aspect that also doesn't get talked about enough when it comes to fiction Um, yeah (laughs) it's kind of like fiction audio just that thing where you just throw together a little story it's fine it's not hard at all it doesn't involve multiple days of research and draft yeah (laughs) i felt very fortunate at the beginning that i didn't know how much i didn't know (laughs) because i think that really would have been (laughs) a barrier (laughs) but once i had started (laughs) then it was like well (laughs) i guess we're doing this now we're here now (laughs) (laughs) so your your first season is mainly um the voice of broadcaster june Mm -hmm. um plus uh some distorted voices um and mm-hmm. later on a couple of others i think yep yeah yes um but the voices um of the characters that you've created around the station have actors and they're in the second season right so mm-hmm. season two is already airing but to mm-hmm. give our audience who may have just been introduced to dispatch today an idea about its tra- trajectory what can people expect from the second and future question mark seasons yeah, I mean, they can definitely expect that question mark. <laughs> um, but uh, from what exists already, there are just there's a whole slew of beautiful people that were willing to indulge me in this project. <laughs> um, and so uh, season two is a cast, we'll say. I will say cast with a little bit of a question mark, but a cast of, um, of seven people. Um, so yeah, seven different voices on season two. Um, and um, we also have an episode um, with a, well, yeah, so there's, I guess there's a lot that happened in season two. Um, we, got, we got theme music. Um, my amazing friend, Amber, who is part of the band Sunblood Stories, um, set us up with some music. So that was such a cool feeling. A real podcast <laughs> um, <laughs> and they're a very cool band um, operating out of Idaho and um, doing really rad community works um, Amber right now is doing something called a free eats project where she's just making food for people who need food um, so we got music and uh, incredible cast of seven of my mostly of my friends that I have coerced into doing things <laughs> and then you know a, an occasional friend of a friend um we also i um have another friend who is um currently making an album um 
he has taken Neapolitan like Italian operas and is um, redoing them as mariachi music. Yeah, he's a classically I'm, trained opera singer. <laughs> I'm sorry, I I need it immediately. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. It's um, the, the so there's an episode where he um, is sharing one of his songs. The album will um, will be out this year, and I'll have you know. I'll be shouting it from the mountaintops because I've heard some of the previous and it's really incredible. I'm very um, excited about that. That sounds amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know really talented people. Yeah, <laughs> you do. Fun. Wow, that's the quite fun a, of this. <laughs> your cast list is quite a list. I'm very impressed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you're, I'm I'm really fortunate. <laughs> it's all it's um I uh, I have one um broadcaster Al Hughes is played by uh, Ray Don Royal and um they're they're a friend of a friend and i think they're the only person involved that had done any kind of voice acting before (laughs) everyone else is um someone that i you know uh coerced into it or someone that had been wanting (laughs) to do voice acting forever and didn't have an excuse um (laughs) when i asked so so it's yeah fun ragtag team just like 89.x1. <laughs> it's just like 89.x1. Yeah. We love it when uh, fiction is really just a mirror of the real world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, um, I talk often about how uh, speculative fiction tries to really like artfully draw these parallels between the real world and, you know, what's being written. And this project is the opposite of that. It's a very blunt <laughs> instrument. There's no, it's not skillfully navigating those things. It's like, it's drawing very direct, you know, thick, scratchy lines um, going like, look at this. It took a highlighter and just went this, exactly. all of this. Yeah, nuance <laughs> is dead and therefore we don't engage with it. Uh, no, I, I, that actually like, one of the things that I was thinking about when I was listening to, to Dispatch is, um, there is a thread, a Twitter thread by N.K. Jemison, where one mm-hmm. of the things that she talks about is the the reactions that she has gotten from some of her readers where they're like, why are you so preachy in the fifth season, right? They call it preachy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, why are you so obvious? She's kind of like, well, subtlety hasn't worked yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Like, essentially, she's just like, I mean, there's there's been a place for subtlety and we tried it. And now, like, I think that we need to be obvious. We need to hit mm-hmm. you over the head with a two by four. Yeah, um, <laughs> no, truly. I think yeah. um, culturally, we're all kind of just like, so yeah. <laughs> we tried that. <laughs> we tried the whisper. Um, yeah. It's shouts now, right? <laughs> yeah, it's shouts now. Like we tried the whisper. We tried the nice, nice artful <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> Right. Mm-hmm. We tried not talking about something as a way to solve it. Yeah. <laughs> that seems like it's going to work. Uh, <laughs> so I really appreciated that about about dispatch and the way that it made me think about like, no, yeah, we should be making art that like shouts because. <laughs> Thank you. It. So it's good. Um, so that is the end of my question list. So at this point, is there anything about Dispatch that you want to talk about that we haven't gotten to talk about yet? I don't think so. I feel like we talked about everything. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, this is, you know, one of the first conversations I've had with a stranger in <laughs> a year. Oh. Yesterday, yesterday I was in a, a class, a virtual classroom, but um, yeah. that was the first conversation I had with a stranger in a year. And, you know, they were like 14. So, right. Yeah, that's that helps. Um, <laughs> yeah. They didn't really want to be there. Um, so, yeah, this is the first adult conversation I've had in a very long time with someone who <laughs> I was not already familiar with. Um, <laughs> I think it went okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it went, I think you, I think you nailed it. Um, I, think, I think it went okay. I definitely understand. Uh, I, I unfortunately, throughout quarantine, have had many conversations with strangers um, as a journalist doing lots of interviews. Um, yeah. Some of them that I really desperately wanted to have, like on this show, and some of them which I was just kind of like, well, must I? <laughs> yep, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I guess I must. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well thank you so much for coming on Radio Drama Revival and chatting with uh, with me uh, Morgan it was really really delightful and very informative thank you I had a blast I really appreciate it if you liked what you heard you can support Morgan Maxwell and Dispatch from the Desert Planet over at www.patreon.com slash dispatch from the desert planet Radio Drama Revival runs on stellar micro-lensing events and the new exoplanets they find. If you'd like to help keep us afloat in featuring new, diverse, unique fiction podcasts and their creators, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. And now we bring you our moment of will. Hello! This week, I want to recommend a show that I think is super, super, super overlooked, and that is Kipo and the Age of the Wonder Beasts. This is a Netflix original cartoon, um, so if you have Netflix, you can access it. It is a completed show. It ran for three seasons, three seasons, I think, um, and it kind of has the feel of uh, modern action adventure cartoons that focus on, like, community and rehabilitation and nonviolence. So things I'm thinking of are like She-Ra and Steven Universe. Um, nonviolence being arguable in all of those. But uh, it also kind of has the feel of like classic, like classic adult swims. You know what? Like classic Toonami, like classic Toonami anime. Um, it is about a girl named Kipo. She is in a post-apocalyptic world where uh, there is like a schism between humans and animals called metamutes. And they are uh, metamutated. So they are like colossal or they can talk or all of those things or they have like other abilities. It's buck wild and they have like a really rich, robust culture. Um, Kipo is looking for her dad. They live in basically like a fallout vault um, and they got separated for reasons. And there's a lot of mystery and the plot goes places I never would have expected. And the characters are amazing. There is some uh, absolutely killer queer rep. Everybody has a beautiful arc. Everybody is really three dimensional. And it's just very sweet and very moving and very fun. And also the soundtrack uh, consistently slaps. It's incredible. It's a really fun time. It's good for if you want kind of the vibe of Steven Universe or something similar, but like you'd like a little bit more intensity and perhaps a little bit less of a meandering plot. Um, don't get me wrong. I love Steven Universe. Kipo is just different and it, it achieves different things. And I think that it's wonderful and I highly recommend it. It is good for most ages, except maybe like little littles. I don't really know. I don't, I don't know how children really work, but 
Um, I trust you, so you should give it a watch. It's Kipo and the Age of the Wonder Beasts. It is on Netflix and it rules. That means it's time for the credits. This episode was recorded in the unceded territory of the Kalapuya people, the Klitskani Indian tribe, the Kaulitz Indian tribe, and the Atfalati tribe. Colonizers named this place Beaverton, Oregon. If you are looking for ways to support Native communities, you can donate to Nourish Our Nations Arizona, an organization that provides essential food items to indigenous families from more than six tribal communities, including White Mountain, Navajo Nation, and Gila River. Their GoFundMe is www.gofundme.com slash f slash nourish dash our dash nations dash Arizona. Our theme music is Reunion of the Space Ducks by the band Kylo Kass. You can find their music on Free Music Archive. Our audio producer is Will Williams. Our marketing manager and line producer is Ann Baird. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our submissions editor is Rishika Rao. Our associate marketing manager is Jillian Schrager. Our transcriptionist is Katie Yeomans. Our audio consultant is Eli Hamada McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our executive producers are Fred Greenhouse and David Reinstrom. Our mascot is Ticker Tape, the goat. I'm your host, Helena Fernandez Collins. This has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers, welcome. Welcome.